Uh, as Anthony mentioned this morning, I get to preach and continue the sermon series that you have been in thinking through God's redemptive plan, how he's worked from the beginning of the Bible to the end, tracing him throughout it. Uh, within the church, both now and in the New Testament, God often tends to use relationships with one another to teach us things about himself, who he is, what we're like, what he intends for this world to look like. And he often does that in ways that are hard and through hard and difficult conversations. And in our passage today, Paul is about to have one of the hardest conversations that he's ever had to teach us something immensely important about our life. Uh, as you see this scene play out, you're not only going to see the drama of what's an uncomfortable situation between two Christians, but you're also going to see one of the most important aspects and doctrines of the Christian faith, as Anthony mentioned, the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification answers the question, how am I to be made right or justified before God if I am a sinner? Uh, Martin Luther says of the doctrine of justification, it is the issue on which the church either stands or falls. Uh, Luther loved what Galatians had to say about justification, so much that he said, Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed it to myself. It is my wife. You know you're a biblical nerd when, when you say you loved a book of the Bible so much that you'd marry it, right? But this is what this meant to him. This book, this doctrine, that, that it is so close, so essential to his faith. One of the reasons that I love this passage in Galatians 2 is because it takes this, what, what can feel like this heady doctrine of justification and brings it down into real life. Because as weighty and as significant and as beautiful as this doctrine is, it can be something that often just finds itself in our heads, in our, in our minds, and struggles to make its way down into our hearts and further into our lives. Hear this, justification is an essential doctrine for those who don't know Jesus, but it is also a doctrine for those who have become quite acquainted with him. So if you're not there yet, grab your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. And I'm going to give us three headings to help us walk through this passage together. The first of those three, a life that betrays belief. Reading from verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's kind of a shocking passage to read, isn't it? Uh, because a church fight, like imagine, imagine something like this happening here. A church fight essentially breaks out during a potluck dinner. And who is in the scuffle? But the two leaders of this new Christian movement, two apostles, Peter and Paul. And you've got to remember that Peter is the highest authority established in the church by Christ himself. Uh, you'd expect that when Peter comes into town, that they would pull out all the stops, that they would pop 
bottles of champagne, put a garland over his head. But instead, what you have Paul saying to Peter is, and I oppose you to your face. Right? It shows us that in God's economy, even if you're the, the top dog, even if you have letters before and after your name, and even if you're leader of the Christian movement in the first century, no one is above or beyond the gospel. So what was the issue at hand here with Paul and Peter? Well, in one way, it was hypocrisy. Plain as day, hypocrisy. Because what you see is that when Peter is with the Gentile Christians, he sits at the table with them, has a laugh with them, right? Pork sandwiches all day, every day. He's all in with pork until he's with the Jewish Christians. Right? And what happens? His, his opinion shifts and he says, pork? Are, are you kidding me? How, how vile, how awful, how unclean. Because what, what do we know about some of the context here? What are some of the Jewish Christians who have come out from the culture and come out from the old way of doing things? What, what's their understanding of ceremonial laws of Judaism? Some of them now are spouting a, a false gospel that says it's salvation through Jesus plus blank, right? It's salvation, yes, through Jesus, but plus something else. That to be accepted, to be justified by God, you need Jesus certainly, but you need Jesus plus something else. That Jesus alone is not enough. This, This group is called the circumcision party, and in one instance they come along and say, Gentile Christians, to be really in on this Christian thing, to be sort of top-tier, varsity-level Christians, you've got to go under the knife. Right? In, in one instance, that, that, that's what they say. The, the Gentiles think about it and say, right, when thinking about circumcision, they say, I'm actually, you know, circumcision doesn't sound all that fun, so we'll opt out, right? Thanks for the party invite, but we're out. We're not, we're not going to join your circumcision party. However, here, the issue is actually not circumcision, but it's about what's on the menu. What are we eating? And and who are we eating it with? See, the issue is Peter can play both sides when both sides are separated. But what happens when the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians converge at a potluck dinner together? Well, that's exactly what happens in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, that is those who were spouting this false gospel, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. The moment comes. Jews and Gentiles converge. And Peter now moves from one side of the church to the other side of the church. He goes from the the Jews to the Gentiles like he's never even known them. He separates himself. And here's the surprising part of this scene. You, You can see it plain as day. Here's the surprising thing about this scene. If anyone would be convinced that this is not right, wouldn't you think that it is Peter? If anyone had an experience and conviction of this, wouldn't it be Peter? Because not only did Peter walk with Jesus, not only did he see what Jesus did on the earth, but even in Acts 10, God gave Peter a vision speaking about something as specific as dietary laws. That there is nothing unclean that God calls clean. It is this Peter who in Acts 15, before the Jerusalem council, when talking about circumcision, 
he says God makes no distinction between us and them. Peter, by his own words, says, having cleansed them by their hearts in faith. You see all of that. And you wonder, Peter, what has vexed you? Uh, What are you saying now here in Antioch? Look how you're living. What has happened? Well, perhaps time has passed. Uh, Perhaps Peter's zeal and focus has waned as cultural pressures and religious pressures have mounted. And then he caves. And what happens here is that Peter's formal theology, what he believes and is convinced of justification, is rubbing up against his functional theology, how he lives in real life. Peter is betraying his belief with his behavior. Uh, Peter has a gap between his creed and his conduct. Uh, Do you feel that? Do you see that here? And here's a warning for us, for you and for me. Uh, Our behavior can, without us even realizing it, undermine our belief. It is possible for Christians to believe the gospel in our hearts and to even confess it with our lips, yet deny it entirely with our lives. Uh, While there are many implications, here's one account I heard from Christian thinker Russell Moore that may be especially relevant to illustrate the cultural undertones in this passage, even as, as it's talking about justification. Russell Moore says this, One of my earliest memories is when a Sunday school teacher was chasing me around one morning for putting a coin in my mouth. That's filthy, she said. You don't know if a colored man may have held that. And Russell Moore continues to say, it may just have been my imagination playing tricks on me, but it seems as though she followed that by saying, all right, children, let's sing. Jesus loves the little children all the children of the world. You hear that, and you see this passage before us today, and you realize that for us, that our life can deny our doctrine, and we may not even see it. My eyes could be blind to even see it. Peter here was reverting to something he had abandoned. He was trying to find acceptance and righteousness from God from God, and from man, from something other than Jesus. I can see that we may not be so concerned about circumcision or pork, but there's something else that runs deep in human nature. People, you and I, always want to add something in addition to what Christ himself has done for us. We can find ourselves putting our righteousness in ourselves, an inferior righteousness. We, we could do that by looking to what we do for a living or how we conduct our business what kind of family or or culture you're from, how much we know about the Bible, perhaps good things like how merciful and, and generous we are, how holy you think you are, how whole how how you are not like those who think they're so holy. Right? How you manage your time or your money or your schedule. Perhaps how we think about our politics or what our prayer life and church involvement looks like. How social and hospitable we are. I think Peter here is actually acting hypocritically because he's fearful. He's fearful of rejection. And yet here, I think it is a sobering thought that no matter who we are, no matter how high we climb in life, how much we advance in our faith, 
that none of us are entirely immune, immune from straying away from this, our faith, and from the truth. It's been said that the best of men are men at best. And so in this fall of Peter, in this, again, uh, misstep of Peter, what I actually feel is comfort here. Surprisingly, I feel comfort because, you know, often in the Christian life, and as, as you look throughout Christian history, and even as you open up your Bible, it's often not the great and heroic deeds of, of great men and women that comfort the church so much as their falls and bruises do. It's often the falls and the missteps of you and I that make us further lean into who Jesus Christ is. And that leads us into the second heading for us. A life that's all in with self. Reading from verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. New Life, would you hear this? No one is justified by works of the law, works of the flesh, by our merit, by our accomplishments, by our piety, or even our holiness. God does not love us because we were once lovable or worthy of His love. The Scriptures say that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus came into the world completely unlovable, us as children of wrath, rebellious to God that Christ came into the world to die for the ungodly, which is all of us. See, what the Jews are trying to do here is argue that you need Jesus, of course. And we would say amen to that. But then they would argue, but, of course, Jesus isn't enough. You've got to follow all the 600 laws that you see in the Scriptures. You've got to, you've got to follow them to a T. It's like trying to take a test that has 10,000 10, questions on it, but the only grades are an A or an F, but you've got to get every single one of them right. And if you don't, you fail the entire thing. Trying to live up to all of it is almost proving to us how unable we are able to keep the law perfectly. The law is able to push us further into our inability to keep it perfectly. Or would you consider justification this way? It's like we're standing in a courtroom where you are on trial, sitting in the defendant's seat, and the crimes that you and I have committed are before all the courtroom to see. Every sin you've ever committed, seen and unseen, it's presented to the judge and to the court, and the case is all but closed because it is evident to all that you are guilty. And only one word remains to be said in that courtroom. Guilty. Guilty. And yet into that courtroom, God, the judge, the judge of all, opens up His mouth and pronounces innocence over you. And what comes to your mind is, why? How can it be that wicked men and women could be justified? Because you and I know what it's like to, to desire justice, right? If, if you have a murder case or a sexual assault case or some other crime, you know that if you are presented with the evidence, if you see that a party is guilty, you would like to see justice. One must pay. So then how is it that wicked men and women like you and I could be justified before a holy God? 
And I just want to read for you how the Heidelberg Catechism answers this question when it asks, how can one be righteous before God? Condemned sinner, wayward saint, to my own undeserving heart, would you allow these words to sink down into your soul? The question, how can one be righteous before God? The answer, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that, though my conscience accuses me that I have grossly transgressed all the commands of God and kept none of them, am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of my own, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I never had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ hath accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with just a believing heart. Friends, there are no sweeter words that you and I could hear in light of our condition. But that the call to be righteous before God is not a climb to some moral ladder, not an exhaustive life that tries to measure up because you and I never will, to repeated failures and and devastations of our attempt to be good. The only and singular call to be righteous before a holy God is to put all of your faith and all of your hope and all of your justification in Jesus Christ, who has become for you righteous, done what you and I could never do. It's like the account of what one late preacher, Donald Barnhouse, did when he was a guest preacher at a church. A woman with good intentions stood up before he preached and sang the words of an old hymn that said, I am satisfied with Jesus. But a question comes to me as I ponder over his goodness. Is he satisfied with me? The song went on and on asking this question. And all that I do, is Jesus satisfied with me? Never resolving it with an answer. And Barnhouse stood up, went to the woman and said to her, Yes, he is. Is he satisfied with me? Is God satisfied with his son, Jesus Christ? Then he is satisfied with you. And he doesn't keep you at a distance, but he brings you in as daughters, as sons. Is he satisfied with you? Yes, he loves you and he approves of you. New life. I'm not sure where you are in life right now. I'm not sure what sins you struggle with what kinds of things you you struggle to prove to other people or before God or perhaps even to yourself. But would you hear this? Justification means that God is satisfied because of Christ Jesus in you. When you look up at God, He does not have a frown upon His face. He doesn't love you more on your best day or less on your worst. God is satisfied with you. But as Paul argues that you know, is it, does this mean that we continue sinning? There's other portions of the scriptures that we see that. We're not going to get time to look through verses 17 and 18. Otherwise, I would have told you what it means that to build our life, to build our salvation on our own merits, is to rebuild what Christ has come to tear down. We won't have time to go into that, but in the last movement, I just want to say one more thing. Verses 19 to 21 shows us an alternative way to believe and to live. 
If we're not going to justify our own selves based on our own lives, where do we find our justification? If it's not in ourselves, it's the third movement, to live a life that's all in with Christ. Verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. The law pushes you to realize how much you and I don't measure up. Hear this. If you feel condemned by Satan, and if you fear that God will no longer hear you or care for you or accept you because of your sins, if you strive to make up for all of your wrongdoings by doing better and trying to prove yourself before God, remember today that if you are in Christ, you are dead to the demands of the law to save you. Dear brother, dear sister, not only cannot cannot save you, but thank God that it cannot harm you. For the judge is on your side. In fact, the judge has come down into the world to actually prove that he is righteous for you. The scriptures say that I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. So we are cemented with Christ. We are one with Him. What He's done has been happening for us from the time that we, we were found in Him to our dying breath. His, our, our sin is dead with His crucifixion. Our death, it dies. Our resurrection is certain. Righteousness is ours. As one of my favorite songs put it, for I am crucified with Christ and yet I live. So we no longer have to look at our lives as as trying to keep the law for righteousness' sake. We can actually now keep the law because we love God and because He loves us. What's more, we are alive to God. Paul closes this section with one more reminder in case Peter, the Jews, and, and we don't realize it. Here's what he says in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness comes from law-keeping, then why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come and shed His blood and break His body? As Paul is saying here, listen Jewish Christians who are purporting this false gospel, you all claim to be so concerned with Christ, but you spout your legalism, you, you nullify the grace of God for you, but I take my stand at the foot of the cross and I do not nullify the grace of God. Paul is saying, I'm saved, I'm justified, I'm God's beloved because of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hear these words from one J. Gresham Mason. He says, Christ will do everything or He will do nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace If justification, even in slight measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. As we close, to those who are here in person and to those who are here online, believe this day in Christ, whether you know Jesus or not, that He is all you need. Christians are not self-justified. They are Christ-justified. If the accusation of your sins and your worth lays heavy on you today, and you hear the accusation from Satan say that this man, that this woman has no right to heaven, 
no right to life, no right to anything good, you know what your response should be today and my response should be? Yes, all of that is true. The accusations are true. But go and see Jesus. He is my justification for being in the family of God. And Christ alone is my hope and my trust. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that in these moments your your Holy Spirit would push our hearts to believe that you are all that we need in life. All that we bring before you in our hands are nothing. Naked we come before you. We thank you, O Lord, that the Son of God has been brought into the world for our righteousness, a righteousness that we could never attain on our own. And we pray that you would help our hearts to find rest and peace there. You justify us. We can never justify ourselves. So help us to believe that both in our heads, in our hearts, and in our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.